This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Kinship United, a nonprofit organization working with everyday superheroes like you to rescue orphans and widows from abuse, trafficking, or worse for the past 19 years. To learn more about how you can save a life, visit kinshipunited.org today. Today is May 22nd, and this is Quick to Listen, where each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes, discuss a major cultural event. And today we have a show for you about India's elections and their impact on the Christian population there. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. I'm joined by my co-host, Caleb Lindgren. Hi there. Good to be back on. As usual. It is great to have you here, Caleb. All right. So who is our guest to talk about this intense subject today? Yeah. So today we have uh, Reverend Vijayesh Lal. Um, He is the General Secretary of the Evangelical Fellowship of India. So we're super pleased that you are here, Reverend Lal. It's good to be here. Thank you. What brings you here, here, as in our studio? How'd this happen? I was uh, visiting a couple of friends of mine in Chicago, and I know one of your colleagues, and he invited me over. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Well, it's great to have you in our little bunker down here, and we're looking forward to picking your brain on this topic. So in 2014, Narendra Modi was elected prime minister of India. Last month, the country held national elections as well, where he was up for re-elections, and the results of that election will be released on Thursday, as India is so populous that the entire electoral process takes place over the course of a month. Current exit polls suggest that Modi's party, the Bharatiya Janata Party, better known as the BJP, is once again headed for victory. Despite Modi's popularity with many of the country's Hindu population, his tenure in office has proved challenging for India's religious minorities. Muslims make up 14% of the country's 1.3 billion people, while Christians make up less than 3%. Since 2014, India has risen 11 spots in Open Doors World Watch List, and last year the advocacy group said that the more than 12,000 Christians were attacked. Earlier this year, it wrote in another report, looking at the statistics, it's evident and undeniable that Christians in India are and have been for quite some time the targets of Christian-based torture, persecution, and oppression at their hands of their fellow countrymen. So this week on Quick to Listen, we'd like to discuss how India's political situation has endangered Christians and if the church can expect things to get any better while Modi's in charge. All right, Caleb. So I don't know if you have any gut check to any of the things that we just went over, but I would love to hear kind of your initial thoughts before we ask our guest all the questions. Yeah, um, my gut check, I guess, would be um, that given the place that India occupies on the world stage, its level of development, the size of the country, and uh, how democratic it is, um, it's a surprise that there's this level of persecution and difficulty, I guess, based on the reports. I would be really interested to hear from Reverend Lal what that means, what that looks like on the ground. Um, but it just was a surprise to me. I wasn't um, expecting that. Um, and it, and also the, the sort of that it's trending downward in terms of mm-hmm. like things are seem to be becoming more difficult. Um, that it, I think we tend to think about things in terms of, of progress and think that generally think that like, well, you know, we're probably better off than we were before because we have more resources and we're thinking about it more strategically and there's all these great NGOs out there that are doing great work, et cetera, et cetera. And then, the, you know, the church is growing all over the world, but then you've got compassion closing all their indie offices and, you know, the, the trend is not good. And so there's a surprise to me. So the first thing that I felt when I was typing up this information was I was like, huh, there's some interesting parallels to what's happened in our own country with regards to the Christian population and the Muslim population here in the U.S. The Muslim population in the U.S. is also extremely tiny, just in the same way, at least percentage-wise, it's tiny in India. I don't think in, like, raw numbers it's tiny. But just thinking about, 
when nationalism starts to surface, what it often means for people who are religious minorities in that particular country and the types of violence that I think that you might and I might have read about in the Open Doors report maybe may have seemed a little bit more brutal, but we have seen different religious minorities being attacked in our own country um, and their houses of worship being places where they're not made to feel safe or are vandalized. And obviously nationalism is something that has been a huge storyline in the past maybe decade, but definitely last five years in India and just trying to understand what drives people to like behave so violently towards groups that are different when that happens. So I'm really glad that we can kind of get some more context for what's going on and Rebel Mall. I'm so glad that you can answer all of our questions that we have. Try to do the best I can. Absolutely. So prior to Modi's 2014 election, how would you have described the relationship between Christians and Hindus in India? Christians and Hindus in India have already had or always have uh, cordial relationships. I believe the relationships are still very cordial. And uh, it is not Hindus who persecute Christians. Let me be very categorical about it. It is a particular group of people who subscribe to an ideology called Hindutva. They are the ones, uh, you know, uh, persecuting not just Christians, but basically uh, all minorities that are different from them. Uh, so that would uh, be the Muslims. That would be the Christians. That would also be the Sikhs, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, sporadic incidents. And that would also be uh, the communists who actually subscribe to no religion at all. And that would also be the Dalits, uh, you know, who uh, are the untouchables. So the Hindutva group, the people subscribing to this particular ideology, are really the ones, I would say, who are unleashing this wave of violence in India. Where do you kind of trace that movement back to? Hindutva, first of all, is not Hinduism. Okay. You know? Hinduism can be termed as a religion. The Supreme Court of India calls it a way of life. You know, if it's a way of life, then how do you convert from a way of life is, is another question, but that let's not go over there. The Supreme Court says anybody who is not a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew or a Parsi is a Hindu. So it's, it's, it's quite uh, open, you know. And Hinduism could, be, could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So you can worship 33 million gods and goddesses and still be a Hindu. Mm -hmm. You can be an atheist and still be a Hindu. You know, there are lots of things to pick and choose from, but mainly six philosophical schools. However, Hindutva is a political ideology. It's a fascist ideology. It believes in one nation, one culture, one people. And it borrows directly from Hitler and elevates Hitler as one of their heroes. They believe in the final solution. These were the forces that killed Mahatma Gandhi. And they, would, they don't hesitate to kill. So this is the ideology that began in, uh, I would say, in the 1920s. Hmm. And Hindutva, what it means is Hindu essence. That's what. So this, they're just taking uh, the, the name Hindu and building a political narrative around it. So they're using religion for political gains. That's what it is. And it is exemplified by the hatred of the other. Hindutva, the ideology and the, its adherents never really fought against the British in our independence struggle. They focused on uh, what they described as the enemies that were Christians and the Muslims and the communists and, and so on and so forth. So this ideology has grown over the years and they have a vision or an aspiration that they, that they want to fulfill. And it's called the Hindu Rashtra or the Hindu nation. Now, what that means is that India will be explicitly a Hindu nation and there will be no room for any other. So uh, the others like the Muslims and the Christians and others would have a choice uh, to embrace Hinduism. If they don't do that, they'll be disenfranchised and they'll have to live as uh, second-class citizens facing violence and all sorts of things. So uh, this, is, this is the ideology that has been politically empowered by the ascension of Mr. Modi Mr. Modi himself being an ardent, uh, you know, uh, follower of this ideology. In fact, he was even a pracharak. Pracharak means an evangelist of this ideology for many, many years. Well, and if I recall correctly, back during the 2014 elections, there was some criticism of him because, or the criticism that resurfaced of him, because if I'm if I'm understanding correctly, he was the governor of one of these states where there had been really Chief intense... Minister. Chief minister. Chief minister. Yes. Okay. Of, of one of these states where there had been really 
intense violence against Christians and uh, Muslims which was, okay, as, as well as Christians. Okay. Was he criticized for not condemning this or not doing more to save the religious minorities there? Well, let's, let's just say this. Uh, more than 2,000 people were killed on his watch. Okay. And uh, Mr. Modi basically did nothing. And uh, the Supreme Court of India, none, no, less, no lesser authority, but the Supreme Court of India referred to him as the, being the modern-day Nero who sat, you know, uh, while the rest of the room burned. So, Mr. Modi, uh, you know, it was 2002, and under his watch, there were riots, and over 2,000 Muslims were killed. Uh, you know, prior to Mr. Modi, also in Gujarat in 1998, uh, Christmas Eve, uh, churches were burnt in Dang's districts. So, uh, things, things were always a little problematic in Gujarat. But Mr. Modi gained from it, you know. He built his narrative around it as a Hindu strong man, and uh, as, as and as somebody who who has shown the Muslims their place, so to say, and he wove the whole narrative around the pride of the that particular state, the state of Gujarat, and uh, you know, countries like your own country, the United States, uh, denied to give him a visa, but then he 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 wove this narrative so in in a manner that in a few years he was elevated to the position of the prime minister. So does Mr. Modi make statements about the religious minority groups or is he explicit about um, that sort of agenda? Oh, he has made com a lot of statements about minorities, a lot of statements about Muslims and some statements about Christians. I have heard those statements and they are not nice. Hmm. So specifically, is he like what what sort of things is he encouraging or like it's, how is he framing it? It is not just he. Uh, the entire uh, BJP or the Bharatiya Janata Party is built on a on the on the platform or or on the rhetoric of uh, uh, anti-minority bashing. That's what it is, and they borrow it directly from their mother ideologue that that's the RSS, which is the main proponent of this ideology. Mr. Modi has said things like Christians are here to convert people, you know, and they are. Uh, they are indulging in these things because of a Western agenda, or he has implied that Muslims are not faithful to this nation uh, many times as the chief minister. And there is ample evidence of these things available on YouTube even now. Uh, but even as the prime minister during this campaign, his campaign and the level of discourse has been so sharp and so polarizing, it is not worthy of a prime minister of any civilized country. So I, I want to talk about these conversion accusations, so to speak. From what I understand, I did an interview a couple months ago with an Indian national, and we were talking about some of the tensions over conversions and the fact that in some communities, it seems that Christianity has been quite successful in finding root in predominantly Hindu communities. And as that's happened, that has not just been something that's been contained to someone's personal piety, but has often kind of shaken up the social status quo as well. One, is that, was that narrative like ring true in your head? And two, what has kind of been the backlash that's occurred as these um, conversions have taken place? Number one, first I'll talk about the backlash and then about the conversion. It is wrong for us to say that, these back, that this is a backlash against conversion. Uh, if you look at India, today's India, uh, Christians and Muslims are being targeted not because of something that they do, but because of what they are, of who they are, you know. So essentially saying Muslims have a, um, you know, soft corner for Pakistan, you know, and that's why they are anti-national, or Christians convert and that's why they are anti-national. So let's beat them up. It is a narrative that is that is propaganda material. My question is, tomorrow if we stop preaching the gospel in India, Will these attacks stop? You know, tomorrow if we stop running educational institutions and medical institutions in India, will these attacks stop? The answer is no, because we are persecuted, not for not because of what we do, but because of who we are. It's a matter of identity. Now we'll come to the conversion part of it. The constitution of our country gives us the right to preach, practice, and propagate our faith. The word propagate has been included over there, and I believe it has been included keeping the Christian and the Muslim communities in mind. If the Constitution gives us the right to propagate, that's what we do. 
when we propagate the message of Christ and if people are uh, you know willing to or if, or if people want to embrace uh, Jesus Christ and his teachings and want to follow him that's their fundamental right again given by the constitution and i fail to see why would anybody have a problem with it but yes the church has worked among the dalits the church has worked among the tribals and the church has empowered these communities you know and some of the empowerment has also come in the form of uh, following christ and leaving uh, hinduism uh, so to say baba sahab ambedkar who wrote our constitution you know he said i was born a hindu but i will not die a hindu he wanted to uh, escape the oppression of the caste system and so you know in the 1960s he along with a lot of uh, his followers embraced buddhism mm. in nagpur and that was that was historical and so a lot of people have escaped from the clutches of the caste system you know and have embraced christianity i remember uh, speaking to a man from orissa uh, his name was manas and he said uh, uh, you know when i came to know christ or when i had started to have fellowship with christian people that was the first time in my life i was treated as a human being so that is why i embraced the christian faith because christ liberated me and gave me a status gave me brothers and sisters and also gave me a social status that does not discriminate against me so why should i not do that and i believe manas is right he has a choice and he exercised it so we recently did a podcast on Sri Lanka and one of the things that they mentioned on that podcast was that for a long time Christianity and colonialism were really linked close together and that only much more recently had Christianity become seen as a movement that was much more inclusive and for everyone specifically people on the margins of society and i'm wondering if to what extent that has also been true in india where christianity was associated with colonialism for a long time Christianity in India is still associated with colonialism but that's the propaganda against the church because Christianity in India is as old as Christianity itself AD 52 according to historians the apostle thomas himself arrived in india and he was martyred uh, at mailapur near chennai so christianity in india is very old you know 2000 years now but the propaganda against the church is it is a it is the religion of the colonial masters and that's why it must be resisted it's one of the propaganda points uh, the truth of the matter is during the british rule the british actually discouraged missionaries from uh, being active in india hmm. and there is plenty of historical evidence for that you know time doesn't give us the permission over here but there's plenty of historical evidence for that but christianity has done more you know in india than just uh, preach christ we have uh, our missionaries have actually been the ones who have preserved languages even though we are a tiny minuscule 2.3% that's how much we are you know uh, our but the ratio of our service to the nation has far outweighed you know uh, much uh, communities that are much larger than us you know in terms of education in terms of health in terms of service to the nation even through defense Uh, lots of christian people in the in in our defense forces and our the christian involvement in the freedom movement of india so uh, when you consider all of those things this propaganda actually falls flat on its face this episode is brought to you in part by thomas nelson publisher of nine lives and county a bounty hunter's journey to faith hope and redemption written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com/audio to learn more. I want to return to the question of uh, status and caste briefly. And here in the West, we get a lot of reports about Christianity growing amongst the Dalit caste. I was curious how that affects things, whether that adjusts the way that people view Christianity as religion, given that it has a certain amount of purchase among the untouchables, and whether that plays into some of these discussions about what, who are Christians, what are Christians, and whether they're of value or... So let me understand your question you're saying christianity because it's 
growing among the dalits uh, is it uh, being undervalued is that what you say yeah does it does it get a bad rap because of that first of all dalit is not a caste mm-hmm. dalit is a self designation mm. uh, these are people who are outside the purview of the caste system and so they are known as the outcasts people would sometimes refer them as the untouchables as well you know so if you touch them you'll the, the whole system is based on a principle of purity pure and impure yeah you know and uh, so dalit is a self designation it comes from the root word dal which means being crushed so when a person says he or she is a dalit what they are saying is i've been crushed for centuries together huh. you know and now i am i'm i'm i'm, I'm awake to my rights and i'll i'll have them basically so he's not allow he or she is not allowing the other person to define him or her as an untouchable they say no you you will not define who, what my identity is my identity is not an untouchable my identity is i'm a dalit who has been crushed by you huh. that's what a dalit is now uh, christians have engaged in the dalit community as much as they have engaged in the tribal community and uh, dalits have responded because jesus christ liberates them gives them an identity uh, which is not an untouchable like manas i just give the example of manas you mm-hmm. know manas couldn't even enter temples and after that he became christian he went to bible college now he's a pastor so a man who could not even enter the temple of god so to say is now a priest to the most high mm-hmm. you know so that's the kind of transformation so a lot of dalits have turned to christ yes that's true but the problem is the double discrimination that christian dalits face in india see dalits when we got our independence were given uh, the advantage of certain affirmative actions by the founders of our constitution mainly baba saheb ambedkar who wanted uh, the dalits to do better uh, and recognize that they have been persecuted for centuries together so they gave them reservations in jobs reservations in political seats reservations in education facilities you know affirmative action mm-hmm. but the very first presidential order of india in 1950 took away those rights from christian and muslim dalits it also took it away from buddhist dalits and sikh dalits but they fought against it and they won it but the muslim dalits and the christian dalits are still fighting for that for those special privileges so today if i am a dalit and i accept christ or i start following christ or i declare that i am a christian my job can be taken away the education of my children can be taken away so the dalits suffer double discrimination today if uh, the christian dalit and the muslim dalit are given those affirmative rights there is a whole underground church of dalit believers that has not come out as christians mm. fearing the backlash if today that were possible <clears throat> scores of people would declare themselves as christians in tamil nadu in andhra pradesh in punjab in uttar pradesh uh, and i think in my view this is a bigger denial of freedom and faith of faith than even in china we are talking about millions of people yeah that was going to be my next question is whether that affects evangelism and that sort of double discrimination like you're talking about um and it sounds like both yes and no well um the discrimination is because the, you don't get the affirmative action you right. don't get your your place in society but the church keeps on growing mm-hmm. you know so yeah it's it's a, it's a yes and a no but is is christianity undervalued uh, because of its dalit followers yes there is a st- social stigma especially in the northern states you know where uh, in punjab for instance they call you if you are a christian you are automatically called a chuda or a chamar hmm. you know which is which are basically uh, names that were used for untouchables in their castes you know and uh, so the social stigma also is part of the propaganda against christians so when we talk about these affirmative action programs you said that some religious minorities were successful in legally appealing them yes but not the christian and muslims no and the court case goes on the how oh, still yes ah. yes it's been there for the last 14 years we've been fighting it out it's still there in the supreme court uh, the supreme court has asked the government to uh, give them an answer of what do they what is their position on the entire matter and neither the previous government nor the government before it has given any indication of what their stand on the matter is wow so that's a huge obviously just yes. has the effect of just kind of making it impossible for them to get access to this yes so 14 years one of the other things i wanted to address with you as far as conversions are from what i understand there's also have been these mass ceremonies where people can reconvert back to hinduism 
when did those start becoming popularized? Okay, they are called ghar vapsis. Ghar vapsi means basically a homecoming. That's what they they are called. Or that's what they are popularized as. The idea of these homecoming ceremonies is as old as the idea of Hindutva itself, and it comes from their founding fathers like Golwalkar, but also uh, temperate uh, uh, leaders uh, as they were considered, like Madan Mohan Malviya, who was not part of this movement but was part of the Indian National Congress, and he also spoke about the soul Gharvapsi. What what it means is basically. For the founders of Hindutva, it means the others, that is, who are not Hindus, have to be given a choice, assimilate or face the action. And uh, to define that, to, to justify that, they have come up with a theory which says everyone who is a Muslim or a Christian in India has essentially was, was a Hindu before. So they have a little bit of Hinduism still left in their soul. And so they want to engage with them to make sure they they awaken to this reality and that they would uh, join uh, you know the hindu world so to say but uh, off late this has been more of a political ploy it has been more of a photo op and um, you know it made headlines uh, about uh, 5 years ago when uh, in agra an organization that went by the name of hindu jagran samanvay samiti uh, claimed that uh, they were planning to make thousands of Christians and Muslims into Hindus. And they claimed that uh, by the year 2021, they will clean sweep India and there would be no Muslims left and there would be no Christians left. That's what they say. In fact, the way was even more crude. They said, by 2021, we will make India Christian-free and Muslim-free. That's That was the whole thing. But uh, when we investigated the whole matter, we found, and when even, not on, not just we, when uh, secular newspapers, national newspapers, then they investigated the matter, they found it, it was a sham. You know, Hindus who were already Hindus, you know, were, were made to sit down and pose as Muslims, you know, who were converting to uh, Hinduism. Or Muslims were called on another pretext you know, uh, of a social function and they were made to sit over there and before they knew it, what was happening, uh, you had these people come wash their feet and bang, now, okay, now you're a Hindu. So, uh, a lot of fraud uh, was going on. Uh, We ourselves have investigated these so-called Garvapsi ceremonies in the state of Himachal Pradesh and some in the state of Uttar Pradesh and we found them to be false, shams basically. But yes, there is a lot of uh, funding that goes into it. So, Hindu Jagran Samanvay Samiti I believe at that point of time, as national newspapers quoted them, had a monthly budget of over 50 lakhs of rupees. I don't know how much is that in terms of dollars, but they have huge funding, also from the West, mainly from the diaspora uh, in the US, the Hindu diaspora in the in the West, that gives extreme amounts of money, uh, you know, to uh, to these people, to these kind of groups, who then not only engage in what they call gharwapsi, you know, homecoming, to which I have to say, which home are they talking about really? Or uh, And a lot of this funding is also directed towards uh, the persecution of minorities. What are the states in India that you would say are either the most tolerant of Christians or the most outwardly friendly of them? The persecution of Christians in India is not new. The persecution of Christians in India was first noticed around the mid-1990s. Uh, that's when it started to get a little systematic. At that point of time, the central belt of India, mainly the states of Madhya Pradesh, Chhattisgarh, Gujarat and Odisha, were the hotspots where Christians were most often beaten up and uh, most often they would have trouble. But uh, that was almost 20 years ago. And now, persecution of Christians has become a pan-India phenomenon. Earlier, it was thought it was, was not present in the south because south uh, had a fair amount of Christian presence. But now, Tamil Nadu, very surprisingly, ranks number second in terms of persecution of Christians in India uh, following Uttar Pradesh. At the Religious Liberty Commission of India, we've been documenting these incidents since 1998. Now, a lot of these incidents uh, take place, but because India is so huge and so vast, we don't come to hear about it. Um, Now, from what we come to hear about, we only are able to verify a little. And only what we verify, we put into the report. And that report has been released Uh, Since 1998, since 2009, we have done a yearly report. It's available on the website. You can go and download it. And according to these reports, 
you know uh, physical violence structural violence they they basically uh, all a part of it but persecution has become from the center they have spread to basically uh, all parts of india but there are still a few states where christians don't get persecuted and they'll be the three northeastern states of nagaland meghalaya and mizoram because predominantly christians you know all other places christians are targeted even in kerala you know which has a sizable christian presence even there christians have been targeted so it's a pan india phenomenon uh, some states persecute more those would be the states of uttar pradesh tamil nadu madhya pradesh chatisgarh jharkhand uh, bihar as now uh, uh, as reported last year bihar and uh, uh, odisha I wonder if you could describe a bit of what that persecution looks like, like on the ground on a day-to-day basis. Um, what does it feel like? Persecution of Christians is primarily physical, and uh, see, India, the the Pew uh, Pew Forum did a bit of a reporting uh, on persecution in India, and they said that social hostility was highest in India, or at least the uh, one of the three countries where social hostility. to religious freedom or to religions were very were highest and we found that to be true so physical persecution is definitely present in india not one day goes by when you don't hear of a pastor being beaten up or an evangelist being beaten up or a christian being beaten up in india along with that in the recent years gender based violence is very high so rape is being used as a tool of persecution molestation Uh, Christian women have been targeted. Nuns have been raped. Seventy-five-year-old uh, Catholic nuns have been gang raped. You know, uh, so rape and gender violence has been used as a tool of persecution. Stopping of church worships is, is very, 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 very common. So in in the late nineteen nineties, we were told, you know, don't do any of these evangelistic meetings. Stay in your churches, and you'll be safe. But now even churches are no longer safe. so mobs come into churches as uh, worship services are being organized or they are still going on and they beat up the people present in fact the best days to persecute christians are sundays you know that's where you find them all at one place huh. so you can bash them up and easter day and good friday and especially christmas so last year in, on christmas we we experienced if i'm if i if memory serves me right uh, more than uh, 60 to 65 attacks just on christmas day hmm. you know from all across india and uh, uh, so even church worship services are not safe we are not safe within the four walls of our church forget about that you're not safe in your own home so uh, this is almost from a year and a half ago in 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 the state of chatisgarh a mother wife of a pastor was putting her children to bed at about 10 in the night pastor was not home he had gone out somewhere uh, she was praying with her children in her bedroom the police comes in breaks open the door asks about the pastor where he was observes what the mother is doing with the children and tells her what you're doing is anti national or 13 pastors that had gathered in the house or 12 pastors who had gathered in the house of a 13th pastor in greater noida which is less than 50 kilometers away from the national capital of delhi you know then they have joined in for prayer and fasting they are not preaching they are not interacting with anybody they're just having a pastor's meeting together and and people come in and they beat him beat them up and they take them to the police station two of my supreme court uh, lawyer friends go and try to rescue them only to be told by the police inspector don't these guys know this is a hindu nation you can't do this thing over here so uh, persecution is physical you know church worship being stopped is a reality uh, you are not safe in your own home but that's just one side of it that's the physical side of it then there is structural persecution structural persecution means you have laws that you put in place and try to choke the life of the out of the community so you have these uh, anti conversion laws which are not really known as anti conversion laws they are known as freedom of religion acts hmm. but actually they stifle the freedom of religion <laughs> these these laws were historically put into place in states because law and order is a state subject by the congress government which is perceived by many as very secular so in madhya pradesh chatisgarh and in orissa and in arunachal pradesh it was the congress that brought these laws after the bjp has found political uh, you know empowerment through through votes 
lately this the bjp that has brought these laws in gujarat and in uttarakhand and in charkhand congress also brought this in himachal pradesh and we fought against it now these laws are also of two types one is from the converters point of view and the other is from the convertees point of view so the old law says if i have converted anybody i must inform the district administration within 30 days of that conversion that such and such person has been converted you know so i have to give the information of it that enough is uh, that itself is enough to raise suspicion why is the state interested in my religion but that's not all the other extreme is the laws that were instituted in himachal in gujarat in jharkhand and in uttarakhand and these laws says if i have to change my religion i must take permission at least 30 days prior to my conversion from the district administration now how do i know when i am going to be converted because conversion is a spiritual process right mm. so how do i know when to take permission and uh, we fought the evangelical fellowship of india fought against this law in the high court in himachal pradesh and we got the prior permission clause removed we are also going to contest these laws in the other states so that is structural persecution one part of it you know then existing laws are used against the church the fcra which is the foreign contributions regulations act which is basically a provision for bringing money into india from the west or from outside india you know for social and charitable activities or for even spiritual activity that act has been used against churches in a massive way the retreat of compassion you you spoke about yeah. uh, happened because uh, uh, some of the provisions of the fcra Uh, act you know were, were pointed out and uh, that was that was kind of the root of the conspiracy and then you have uh, existing laws like the uh, juvenile justice act and uh, that uh, provisions in that laws in in that juvenile justice act have been used against christian orphanages and many christians have been forced to close down their orphanages in india so uh, use the law to choke the life out of the community and the biggest discrimination i must point out is the denial of affirmative action to dalit christians so this, the supreme court made this observation and i'm not quoting them i'm paraphrasing them the, what they said and i think this was in 2015 if i'm not wrong they said we we recognize that the economic and social standing of a person does not change of a dalit does not change uh, even if they embrace christianity or islam so if a christian dalit wants reservation privileges he or she is free to embrace hinduism and like i said this is a bigger denial of freedom of faith than even in china so physical persecution and structural persecution go hand in hand so india one of the things about having this just huge population of 1.3 billion people is that it's also just home to tons of different ethnic groups and different languages that are spoken and i'm curious if we can just shift into more of a, a missions conversation to what extent have many of these groups been exposed to the gospel and to what extent have many of these groups never even heard of the gospel before now uh, there are mission groups right now who claim that uh, uh, there are no unreached unengaged people groups in the world and that we have come down to essentially zero about them but i i i have a slightly different view i believe there are many ethnic groups in india who have yet to hear about the lord jesus christ um we have uh, 6500 something languages every 25 kilometer the language changes so there is a huge need of bibles bible translations still have to be completed you know i i don't think really we are there as far as the missions are concerned uh, there is still a huge effort that needs to be put in one of the biggest stories last year for us was the story of john allen cho who was the the young american man who tried to reach out to the native people on North Sentinel Island and was killed by one of them or several of them and i'm wondering if you would be able to give us your understanding of that story from your perspective how how that played out and what you thought of that i appreciate his zeal um but he perhaps did not give much thought to it that's that's my whole perspective on the whole thing you know uh, i appreciate his heart he wanted to reach the north sentinelese people and but these people are protected people what does that mean that means even indians can't go in there okay no outsiders are allowed in there these people have lived in their habitat undisturbed uh forever and they don't have the immunity that we have uh, to a lot of diseases that we carry in our bodies 
and uh, so you know chow might have also endangered them in that in you know exposed them to viruses and microbes that they have no resistance for and they are already so few you know they they might be wiped out but we never know we never know uh, this is completely between god and chow you know i have no reasons to doubt his uh, his zeal and his passion for god uh, but he could have perhaps been a little wiser you know uh, and and this story was used uh, to abuse the christians in social media <laughs> you know as is always the case you know point out that we are fanatical converters and so on and so forth and because chow was an american uh, yeah your guys are you guys are american agents basically ah uh, yes always that that is actually what many persecuted persecuted christians here around the world right When, yes yeah. yes so yeah uh, i don't know which mission organization chow belonged to uh, you know i have not uh, i don't have the details of of it but when i listen to his story i obviously prayed for him he's a brother in christ and i appreciated his zeal but i wished he could have been a little more wiser right now i'm wondering if you can just kind of tell our audience how they can pray for indian christians especially as we're kind of awaiting the results of these elections that are coming up and maybe likely entering another modi term yeah well no matter who comes if mr modi is coming you know god has ordained it and so we will accept it if mr modi is not coming you know even then the situation of minorities in india will not improve yeah the situation of christians in india will not improve and let me give you an example why christians in india have not been the only ones facing the brunt of uh, nationalism you know about muslims being lynched you know you can eat beef in your country over here in india even if you found carrying beef you can be killed people have been lynched on suspicion of having beef in their refrigerators uh, one such man who was killed was a man called mohammed akhlaq and akhlaq lived not very far from my own home so i went there to his village to see uh, you know how things were and it was a very disturbed uh, atmosphere over there and what pained me even more is that union ministers central ministers uh, actually went into his village and honored the ones who killed him bjp people actually did that but what broke my heart even more was during that time i did a social experiment i use uber and we have a home grown like you have lift we have something called ola and uh, so i use them quite often to travel around delhi because riding around delhi is a nightmare and uh, when a clock was killed i used to ask this question to nearly all of my taxi drivers who came from the noida area where a clock was near the area you know and i used to ask them you know about the the man who was just lynched because people suspected he had beef in his refrigerator and they would say yeah 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 we know about the guy we heard the story and then i would ask them do you think what happened to him was good or bad do you think what happened was what took place was good or bad 90% of them said it was good that he was killed these are not fanatics these are these are normal hard working people earning a decent wage for their family to feed their family and that shows you how deep the poison has gone in how deeply this dispensation under mr modi has polarized the minds of indians we were never so divided as a nation as we are now so when you pray for us pray that this polarization would end pray that love will prevail pray, pray that peace would return and pray that children will not be brainwashed uh, you know people will not be brainwashed and that hatred would be defeated thank you so much for this really interesting and informative conversation about all of these topics we truly appreciate it for people that have feedback they can leave it for us on twitter we're at ct podcast they can also send us an email we're at podcast@christianitytoday.com i want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by subscribers of christianity today magazine we recently released our june issue caleb i know you were flipping through that a couple minutes ago and i was wondering if there's anything that you wanted to hype or draw our listeners attention to Yeah, um I'm going to kind of go with the obvious one. Uh the current issue of uh CT Magazine is a June issue and uh the cover story is is really incredible. So the topic of the cover story is or the title rather is God gave us oil 
Um, and it's basically asking the question, like, what do we do with this natural resource? And it sort of has a broader side of it, which is talking about um, stewardship of natural resources in part, but it's specifically about oil and how we as Christians can interact with this resource, with the companies that drill it, with the people that use it. Um, and so the cover is a beautiful um, sort of, looks a little like an oil slick, but it's got all the sort of kind of rainbow colors that you see if you're looking at a, like um, oil on the surface of water, which is really, really gorgeous. And it's also got a cool metallic flick ink on the cover, which is nice. But then um, the article does a really great job about talking about the history of uh, oil um, use and drilling and also a lot of different ways to think about it from a Christian perspective, which I at least don't think about very frequently, which is like, you know, use of natural resources. I think that kind of conversation gets had as far as like creation care, but really specific like energy policy or things like that. Like that's not something that I'm thinking about using a Christian framework very often, even as a theologian, which in theory I'd be doing that sort of thing all the time, but I'm not. Yeah. And I think it's just a really visually pleasing piece. It covers a lot of really interesting stuff and I am excited for folks to read it. All right. So that is part of our June issue. If you would like to get a copy of this magazine, you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. That's orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which gives everyone a chance to share something that brought them joy in the past week. You are up first, Caleb. All right. Um, I, uh, this past weekend, went to a concert of my favorite band, which is Snarky Puppy. How many times have you talked about it on the podcast? So many times. And I'm going to talk about it again because I love them. They're great. Um, It was a really good concert. They put on a really good show. Uh, The woman who opened for them, who's um, affiliated with their label, I think, uh, Alina Agbarian, I believe she's Ukrainian. I don't know, though. But um, she was incredible. Really, really beautiful, smoky, sort of soulful voice and some really interesting song arrangements. She did an arrangement of a Stephen Sondheim song, which was really cool. Musical theater. Yeah, Broadway musical theater. It was just a great, great show. Really fun to watch people play good music. Um, There was a big crowd and everybody was way into it, which is always a blast. So I had a great time um, at that concert. What was was the venue? It was at the Riviera in Uptown. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So um, good, good night for a concert. Good, good spot for it. Really a ton of fun. Yeah. um, If folks want to find me or follow me, um, I'm on Twitter at C A D A M S. L-I-N-D-G-R-E-N, that's C. Adams Lindgren. Um, you can follow me there. I don't tweet frequently, but when I do, I hope it's interesting. I don't know. Um, yeah, and it's to articles that you've worked on. Yeah, typically it's to articles that I worked on or things that I'm, I find interesting. Sometimes I'm on there asking about stuff I want to know about for things that I'm doing. Uh, but yeah, um, you guys can follow me there or um, you can also just subscribe to CT and see the work that we do. Awesome. All right, Reverend Lal, what is the thing that brought you joy in the past week? I'm visiting your countries and I have friends over here that I haven't seen for maybe three or four years. And so just meeting them and meeting their families uh, is one of the main uh, joys in the past week for me. How did you meet these friends? Some of them are from India. Some of them are old colleagues. Okay. And some of them I met over here. Okay. Yeah. So so that is that is a reason for joy. And uh, it's it's also good to know, you know, like one of them said, we pray every day for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you hear that somebody prays every day for you or that some family prays every day for you, uh, you're just so very grateful. When what was the first time that you visited the U.S.? 2004. So quite some time ago. And you came to Chicago or California, New York, or where did you go? Washington, D.C. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. That point of time, yes. How, yes. how many different states do you have you been to? Haven't counted. <laughs> okay, so a good amount then. Sounds like uh, yeah, but but not more than ten, I suppose. Okay, not more than ten. Um, you have a beautiful country out here. Yeah. Can I ask a dumb question? How many states does India have? Twenty nine. And which one do you live in? I live in uh, Delhi. Okay. Delhi is a union territory. Okay. Ruled directly by the central government. Of course, it has its own chief minister as well. But yeah, there have been talks about giving Delhi statehood and and, and stuff like that. But yeah. It's um, it's a city of twenty million people. What? Uh, yes, and it's uh, it's you know these are exciting times to live in India, uh, the world's uh, largest Hindu population, and the world's second largest Muslim nation, uh, and by twenty fifty we'll be the world's largest Muslim nation as well. So yes, so yeah. Exciting times is definitely the right word. It's for not you. not the Middle East. It's India. And let me do a bit of ad over here. So if you want to follow us, yes, you know, uh, go to Facebook, 
go to Evangelical Fellowship of India and like us. And that way you can have all the updates and follow up. And we are also on Twitter on uh, EFI underscore tweets. Okay. And like you said before, you can find reports to the work that you guys are doing. Yes, they can all be downloaded from our website. That's efionline.org. We are setting up a separate website for the Religious Liberty Commission, but it's not there yet. But um, till that time, you can just go to the website if it's not there. If you're having trouble, just email us. We'll send it to you. All right. That sounds great. Thank you. My precious moment this week was going to an art fair yesterday in this giant old warehouse building. And I don't go to art fairs all the time, so I can't compare them necessarily. But some of the fairs that I go to, I feel like they cram all the art in into one spot. Um, But in this instance, they had beautiful walls where people could put their stuff all over the place. And they had a lot of artists from around the world. So I talked to someone from Spain, from Ukraine, from France, from Brazil, and then a bunch of Americans as well. But it was everyone was really open to just like chatting about their art and their work and their process. And then they also had a free concert there that I got to go to at the end. And the concert was probably 60 people in one room sitting on the floor and a band that just kept walking around the, um, it was really great. So they were like walking through. Yes. The, the saxophone player was Mm -hmm. just like, what kind of meander through. That's a great question. So they had a guitar player, a bassist, a keyboardist, a saxophone player, a trombonist, and drums and then a rapper and a singer oh man so a lot going on a lot going on it was very fun in that way um and they were lively and interacting with the audience so it was a good time and it was free so can't complain about these things all right people can find me on twitter i'm at m-e-p-a-y-n-l that's it for us this week thank you everyone for listening to another episode of quick to listen this podcast is on spotify apple Podcasts, stitcher wherever you want to get your podcasts we are there if you do want to give some feedback to the show, you can either email us at podcast at christianitytoday.com or write and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is produced by myself and Cray Allred, and the music is by Sweeps. We will see you all next week. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Kinship United, a nonprofit organization working with everyday superheroes like you to rescue orphans and widows from abuse, trafficking, or worse for the past 19 years. To learn more about how you can save a life, visit kinshipunited.org today. This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.